Tonight we continue our study of the book of Colossians. As we begin the section in chapter uh, 3 at verse 18, which deals with reciprocal relationships. And it's very important for us to appreciate the fact that these relationships are reciprocal because we begin with the husband-wife relationship and it is a two-way street. And the Apostle Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, makes it abundantly clear that the marriage relationship, the husband-wife relationship, is a reciprocal relationship. In Ephesians, uh, the epistle that is uh, very similar in nature to the Colossian epistle, the Apostle Paul elaborates more on the husband-wife relationship at chapter 5, beginning at verse uh, 22 of that chapter. And while he says much of the uh, same things in the Colossian letter, uh, there is more of an expansion on this particular relationship in the uh, Ephesian letter. And we need to keep in mind that these letters, these epistles were circulated among the churches. So while he may have uh, written less to one particular congregation in the case of the Colossians about the husband-wife relationship versus writing more about it in the Ephesian letter, they would have been circulated, and as we today have the benefit of all of these epistles, we can uh, uh, gain uh, what we need to gain from the sum, S-U-M, of God's truth on any uh, subject. But he begins with an admonition in verse 18, where we begin tonight, to the wives. And the admonition is, wives, submit to your own husbands. When we stop right there, there are many women in today's world who find that admonition repugnant indeed. Uh, they find it to be a male chauvinistic type statement. We've talked about this in, in classes before, that the feminist movement finds these kinds of admonitions in Paul's epistles to be uh, repugnant, as we said, to be chauvinistic. Uh, and uh, uh, discriminatory against women. Nothing could be farther from the truth because, in fact, we need to appreciate and fully understand the times in which Paul penned these epistles. They were in Roman times where wives had absolutely no standing whatsoever and where the husbands had every right to take the life of the wife take the life of the children for that matter, and we'll talk more about that relationship in just a moment, uh, sell the children into slavery or condemn the child or children to death and carry out the execution himself, the father could. Now those are the times in which these epistles uh, were written. Those were the times in which Christianity came onto the scene where it began. And it took women... Although the admonition here is to submit to their husbands, it took women for a, from a position of being despised, uh, of having no standing whatsoever, of being nothing more than a man's property, and elevating her and placing her on a pedestal. But that is true regardless of the times in which we live. We don't live in times, very thankfully, uh, as in Roman times, where husbands have the prerogative of uh, killing their wives or uh, killing their children or selling their children into slavery, thankfully. But even in, in the times in which we find ourselves today, 
These admonitions, these relationships that are discussed by the Apostle Paul, these reciprocal relationships still, still, and for all time to come, will place women on a pedestal if both the husband and the wife understand and appreciate their God-given reciprocal roles. And we keep emphasizing that word reciprocal because it is not, the relationship is not a one-way street. And we didn't finish the verse initially. Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, before we go into detail in these uh, verses we're going to look at through chapter 4, verse 1 tonight, I want you to keep in mind some of these qualifying expressions that are absolutely crucial to Paul's teaching here. This is the first one, as is fitting in the Lord. Look down at verse 20, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. When you go to verse 22, in sincerity of heart, fearing God. Verse 23, whatever you do it heartily, as to the Lord. Verse 24, for you serve the Lord Jesus Christ. All of these expressions that are given in this discussion about these reciprocal relationships remind us of the importance of our Christianity affecting every aspect of our lives, permeating every relationship. You remember back earlier in this third chapter, the Apostle Paul, under the figure of clothing, talked about the fact that we have put off the filthy garments of sin, and if we are Christians, we have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge. That's verse 10 of this uh, third chapter. And down at verse 12, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on, again the figure of the clothing, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another if anyone has a complaint against another. Then verse 14, but above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts, verse 15. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, verse 16. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord. That is by his authority, verse 17. Now we're back to verse 18, where we find these qualifying expressions. As is fitting in the Lord, which is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fearing God, as to the Lord, you serve the Lord. But the point is, all of these relationships or all of these statements that remind us that our initial and primary responsibility is to God, that responsibility is to have its effect in every aspect of our lives. In other words, we don't separate what we do here and the attitudes that we manifest toward one another, brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't leave that attitude here at this building when we leave this building. Our attitude as Christians permeates every relationship. I don't separate. If I'm a businessman, I don't separate what I do when I'm in, uh, in the services of the Lord or when I'm worshiping God or I'm studying God's Word on Wednesday night or Sunday night or I'm, when I am with uh, God's people, I don't say, well, that's one thing uh, to be a Christian in that setting. It's another thing when it comes to my business relationship. Why, of course not. The point is, everything we do, we do as to the Lord. 
And that is something that is emphasized by these expressions we have just called attention to here throughout these verses. And it's vitally important that we keep uppermost in our minds and consciously focus on making sure that in every relationship that we sustain, whatever that relationship is, family, work, school, whatever it is, Christianity dominates and Christianity motivates everything that I do. Why is it important to stress that? Because I'm afraid that many people unconsciously perhaps lose sight of, of that. And we must not lose sight of that. And this section of this epistle we are studying is a very sobering reminder of how important it is to make sure that because of our relationship to God, that will dictate every other relationship that we have in our lives. Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Why is it that submission on the part of the wife to the husband should be something that, that is, as we say, repugnant? I remember doing a wedding one time where we were discussing, as I always do if I'm performing a wedding ceremony, I can remember discussing the vows and having the bride-to-be request of me that I leave out the word obey in that ceremony. She was not really too excited about being admonished to obey her husband. Well, if the husband is the husband he should be, she ought to be thrilled to be under submission to him and to obey him. And if he is fulfilling his responsibility as the spiritual head of the house, then that relationship works together very beautifully. And in the Ephesian epistle, where more on this particular relationship is said by Paul than in the Colossian epistle, it becomes abundantly clear that the admonition to the husband is that he's to love his wife. That's verse 25 of Ephesians 5. He's to love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And as I have often asked, what woman in her right mind would not want to lovingly and willingly submit to a husband who truly is trying his best to love her as Christ loved the church. What did Christ do as a result of his love for the church? He shed his blood and suffered horrifically, physically and otherwise, to bear the sins of mankind upon his sinless shoulders because he loved the church to that degree. You let a husband strive to love his wife to that degree, and you have a wife, you should, who appreciates that so much that she lovingly and willingly submits as is fitting in the Lord. But that's the key qualifying phrase, isn't it? As is fitting in the Lord. Now here, he says, husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. But as we said, when you go back to the Ephesian epistle, he elaborates more on that husband-wife relationship, especially in the admonitions to the husbands, and tells the husband, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Then he goes down in verse 28 of Ephesians 5 and says, so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. Husbands are not prone to be beating themselves up from day to day, are they? And just abusing their own bodies? Of course not. They're not going to do that. Therefore, love your wife 
as you love your own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. And as Paul points out there, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but love uh, nourishes and cherishes it. And again, he adds in the Ephesian letter, just as the Lord, just as the Lord does the church. Now, what a relationship we have here if that relationship is based upon the admonitions that Paul gives not only in the Colossian epistle we're now studying, but in the Ephesian letter, which we have studied on various occasions in the past. Love your wives, husbands. And if so, then why should the wife not want to submit? Authority is a problem in today's world, isn't it? We have an authority problem in the world in which we live today in virtually every realm. And it certainly affects the husband-wife relationship where wives are admonished in Scripture to be in submission or under authority of the husband. But we're under authority somewhere, somehow, to someone virtually every day that we live in some way. Why should we, why should we rebel against the authority that is enjoined scripturally upon the wife toward the husband? Then if you'll look at a parallel passage or a relevant passage, I should say in 1 Corinthians 11, beginning at verse uh, uh, 1, Paul says, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. And then he goes on, now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Then listen to verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 11. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. Are we to submit to Christ? Are we under the authority of Christ? Absolutely. The head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man. That goes along with what we're studying here in the Colossian epistle and what we've referenced from Ephesians. But notice, and the head of Christ is God. The head of Christ is God. Did Christ submit lovingly and willingly and fully and completely to the authority of the Father? as he came to this earth to live among men and to sacrifice himself for the sins of mankind? Indeed, he did. He perfectly kept the will of the Father, and he left a position of equality with God to humble himself and to submit to the authority of God. Why should I, or why should any woman, hesitate to submit to the authority of her husband in the same manner as is fitting in the Lord as the Lord himself submitted himself to the Father in heaven. You remember Philippians 2, 5 through 8, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but what? But made himself of no reputation taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearances of a man, of a, as a man, he humbled himself and became what? Obedient, submissive, willingly submissive, obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Submission to authority is something that the Lord did not find repugnant as he submitted to the will of the Father nor should we find our submission 
to him repugnant to us, nor should woman find her submission to the husband repugnant to her. Especially, obviously, if it is a submission where that reciprocal relationship is appreciated and respected by both the husband and the wife. Well, what about the children? What about the children? Children, obey your parents in all things. And here's another one of those phrases, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Children have a responsibility. Children have a responsibility to be respectful of parents and to be submissive to their authority. Obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Now, obviously, what is understood in the all things is that the parents are the kind of parents they need to be and that they are guiding the children in the way that they should go and that they are bringing them up truly in the nurture and, and admonition of the Lord. But even with parents that are non-Christians, uh, uh, the admonition is nonetheless to respect them and to uh, honor them and to realize their authority. But oh, wouldn't it be wonderful if every set of parents in today's world, if every set of parents was a set that had their mind set on things above, as the earlier admonition from this chapter in Colossians tells us we should set your mind on things above parents need to set their minds on things above and thus bring their children up in the nurture and admonition of the lord and children have a responsibility to obey their parents in all things obviously as paul writes to this church he is writing here to children who would be capable of understanding the writing and putting into practice uh, that uh, admonition and the commandment that is given. What about fathers? They are specifically then addressed here. Do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Again, if we go back to the Ephesian epistle, the chapter 6 and verse 4, there the admonition is worded similarly, but he says there, and you fathers do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition or training and admonition, as the New King James says, of the Lord. Do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Do not provoke your children to wrath. Here the responsibility is to be even-handed, if you will, reasonable and right and scriptural in the kind of leadership that you as a father in your family offer to your children. Don't bring them up in a way that you are so difficult to please, so hard on them that they ultimately determine they can't do anything right. You know what may happen if they, if they ultimately come to the conclusion that I can't do anything right, I can't please this man? They may just give up trying to please this man and begin to please themselves. And so this is an admonition that is to guard the fathers against being overbearing, unreasonable, and demanding more of their children than God himself would demand. Because in doing so, ultimately those children may become angry, may become discouraged as we get that from reading both the, the Ephesian epistle and what is said there and what is said here, and may rebel against the parents. So the submission here in this reciprocal relationship, wives to husbands, 
husbands to wives, children to parents, and specifically fathers. Why are fathers singled out here in this passage? Why not the, uh, the mothers? Well, mothers have a responsibility to their children, obviously, but fathers are the spiritual heads of the household. At least they are to be the spiritual heads. And they provide that spiritual leadership, and therefore Paul addresses them, I believe, in that regard, based upon that sobering responsibility that belongs to the fathers. Then we move to verses 22 through 25 of Colossians chapter 3, continuing the reciprocal relationships, but here he shifts his attention to uh, the servant-master relationship. And we understand that at the time that Paul penned uh, this epistle, there was that uh, relationship that existed, just as it existed in Old Testament times, that is, um, slavery. Thankfully, slavery has been uh, abolished, and we can really say that slavery was abolished because of uh, Christian principles and ethical principles uh, that were ultimately embraced by those who understood and appreciated that a slavery relationship where men are sold and, uh, and kept in bondage, as it were, is a relationship that needed to be, in, uh, needed to be ended. But in Old Testament times, and I'm sure in New Testament as well, uh, there were times where uh, there were debtors uh, who became slaves in order to pay off debts. There were relationships that were entered into that involved a master-slave uh, relationship that Christianity did not seek to end abruptly. But more like leaven rather than dynamite, uh, Christianity went to work to ultimately dissolve uh, the relationship between masters and slaves that needed to be uh, dissolved. You know, you think about it, if indeed Christianity had come onto the scene and had said, now, uh, any master-slave relationship, if you're a slave, when you become a Christian, then you're no longer obligated to your master at all. You're free. What kind of motivation would that have provided for many to become Christians? Well, it would have provided an improper motivation. Who knows? By the thousands, there would have been slaves perhaps becoming Christians for all the wrong reasons. But what we do see is the relationship addressed in a way that if these principles that are enjoined upon this reciprocal relationship about which we are to speak now, if those principles were followed, the master-slave relationship dissolved as a result of the application of these principles. And you remember Onesimus, and it may very well be that this discussion here is uh, as lengthy as, as it is in the Colossian letter because a little bit later on uh, in uh, verse 9 of chapter 4, Paul reminds, uh, reminds the Colossians that Onesimus is one of the very ones who's bringing this epistle along with the letter to Philemon, we believe. You remember that one uh, chapter letter to Philemon about his runaway slave, Onesimus, who had run away and then had been converted, and now Paul was sending him back home as a brother in Christ, not only as a slave to Philemon, but as a brother in Christ. Well, Onesimus was going to be one of the men who handed the uh, letter to Philemon about himself, 
and who delivered the Colossian letter as well. And that Philemon letter is a beautiful study in Paul's approach to his brother in Christ Philemon about how he should now treat his runaway slave who was coming home, but coming home not only as a slave or servant or bondservant, but now coming home as a brother in Christ. Do we know what Philemon did with Onesimus, whether he freed him, gave him his freedom? No. No, but we could uh, speculate uh, pretty strongly, perhaps, based upon Paul's confidence in Philemon and how he expressed that confidence and um, would uh, have every hope that that relationship became a relationship other than a master-slave relationship. But nonetheless, here is the here is the teaching that he gives on this subject. Bondservants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God, and whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. Now, notice, bondservants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh. In other words, your physical masters, those to whom you are uh, bondservants or, or slaves. But how are you to render that obedience? Not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, notice this, fearing God. One of those expressions we pointed out earlier as is well-pleasing to the Lord, fitting in the Lord, fearing God. Again, every relationship, and this is the reminder, every relationship is affected and directed by our Christianity. Now, one might say, well, we don't have slaves, and I'm thankful we don't have slavery, obviously. So what's the practical application of this teaching now to us? Well, I think the obvious practical application to us is the employer-employee relationship. There's, there's a clear practical application here. Uh, how are we, if we are employees, how are we to render uh, service to our employers? What kind of employee should a Christian be? The very best employee that any employer could ever hope to have. But if indeed... That employer sees no difference between those in the world and those who, are, who have come out of the world and have become Christians in terms of how they render service. And that eye service is simply an expression that means that when the boss is looking, you're busy as a bee. And when the boss isn't looking, uh, you may be slacking off as much as you can. Not with eye service as men pleasers. In other words, not just when the boss is looking, but if the boss never showed up for a day or days at a time, he could depend upon you as a worker who is a child of God, who is a Christian, whose first responsibility is to the Lord to make sure that he is the very best employee that that employer could have. Because you're serving God. As you serve your employer, you are serving God. Again, that gets back to every relationship being affected by our Christianity, no matter what that relationship may be. And so sincerity of heart, not with eye service, not when the boss is looking, but when the boss is not looking as well, you give that employer the best you have. Do it heartily as to the Lord, 
because that's your primary relationship. And whether the boss is looking or not, the Lord is. The Lord is looking, and the Lord does know. And whatever you do, do it heartily. Knowing this, now notice, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance for you serve the Lord Christ. You think about these words as they were written initially to these uh, bond servants who had become Christians. As they served their masters, did they have any hope whatsoever of any kind of inheritance from those masters? No, nothing at all. They were not children. They were not heirs. They got nothing. Unless the master, obviously, uh, was very philanthropic and, and uh, made that choice. I suppose he could have. But there was no inheritance that was incumbent upon the master to give at all to that slave. Slave was just his property and he was doing the work. There was no inheritance that awaited him. But what Paul reminds the bondservant who is a Christian about is that you have an inheritance. The greatest possible inheritance inheritance. You serve the Lord Christ. And so don't you be concerned about the fact that your master may not give you anything and that you are not entitled to any inheritance based upon that relationship as it existed in the first century. But nonetheless, you have a far greater reward that awaits you. Now think about that for a moment as it relates to us. Because what this really says is that in that relationship, things were not always fair. And that reminds us that in relationships or in circumstances in this life for us, even today and for as long as time stands, life will not always be fair to us, will it? And we are going to be slighted at times. And we may not get what we think we truly deserve and maybe what we truly do deserve in terms of earthly relationships. And the rewards may not come as we truly deserve them. That's true in any age, not just true of the master-slave relationship. That's, in, that's true of the employer-employee relationship today. And I dare say that there may be many of you who can think of a situation right now in your employment, whether you are currently employed or whether you're retired, you can think of a situation where perhaps you did not receive the treatment that you truly knew was fully fair treatment. But be comforted. Be comforted by these words that that's not always going to work out the way we believe it will. And young people need to appreciate the fact that as you go through life, things are not always going to be fair. And people are not going to treat you uh, fairly. And that's true whether it may be a teacher, maybe a coach, maybe, maybe an employer, whatever that relationship. You may be mistreated. But you keep the attitude of the child of God uppermost in your mind and you Make sure that your life reflects that attitude as you live your life and you have the full assurance that someone else who is more important than everyone else on this earth, the God of heaven, is ultimately going to reward you for those labors and that he will be fair. He will be just. I think we need to appreciate that as we read these words from the Apostle Paul about this particular 
relationship. It does have application to all of us. Then he says, but he who does wrong, this is verse 25, but he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. Now, commentators have been divided as to whom this uh, applies, as to whom this uh, is, uh, uh, about whom this is speaking. Is it speaking uh, of the slave here, or the bondservant? Or is he talking about the, the master? Well, uh, I would lean toward uh, the fact that he's talking about the master here. You serve the Lord Christ, and realize that. Now, if your master does wrong, then he's going to be repaid for what he has done. And he adds this statement, and this may be the key to, uh, to where we should apply this or to whom we should apply it, and that is to the master. And there is no partiality. You know, it could be that in this situation, the master might think, well, I don't have to be that concerned about, uh, about how I treat my servant because... After all, I'm in, a, I'm in a different position. I'm a privileged character, so I can do that. Well, the Lord, or Paul, by inspiration of the Spirit, reminds them, if this is indeed the Master about whom he writes here, that if the Master doesn't do right by you, then he'll be repaid for what he has done. And he says there is no partiality. Now there's another passage in the Ephesian letter that leads me to believe that it's the master here that is under consideration here in verse 25. That's Ephesians 6 and verse 9 because there's a very similar statement here. Notice it. And you masters do the same things to them. He's talking about now the, the masters versus the, the bondservant. Giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. He makes virtually the same statement in regard to the partiality where it is clear in Ephesians 6, 9, he's talking about the master. And here he says there's no partiality as he uses this last phrase. And that would lead me to believe that it's the master who is primarily under consideration here in the last part. But it is certainly true that he who does wrong, whether it's the slave here in this situation or whether it's the master or whether it's both, God, God is going to repay what has been done. And that's true of all of us, isn't it? But then in the final verse we look at tonight, and remember the chapter headings were placed there by man, and so this is chapter 4, verse 1, but obviously it goes with chapter 3 because it concludes the thoughts that Paul is expressing here on these reciprocal relationships. Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. He reminds those who are masters, you do what is just and fair. Now think about this relationship as we close. The slave becomes a child of God. His conduct is dictated every aspect of his life, dictated by his Christianity now. The master becomes a Christian, and every aspect of his life is dictated and dominated by his Christianity. So you have the slave who's a Christian, the master who is a Christian. How long will that slave be subject to that master? How long will that master be the master of that slave? Chances are, not very long. Or if that relationship continues in any way closely akin to that slave-master relationship, it'll be more like an employee-employer relationship as both these men 
apply the principles of Christianity to their lives. Because that's how powerful the leavening influence is of Christianity in the lives of those who will truly apply those principles to their lives. What we need to take from this, if nothing else, is that our Christianity must affect every aspect of our lives, every word, every action, in every relationship, whatever that relationship may be. What about your relationship with your master in heaven? Or is he your master? You also have a master in heaven, or do you? You do if you're a faithful child of God. Having believed with all of your heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and acted upon that faith by repenting of your sins, confessing Jesus to be the Christ, and then being buried in baptism for the remission of sins, he then became your master in heaven. Is he still your master? That is, are you still living in such a way to have your Christianity affect and dominate every aspect of your life, or have you allowed the world to become more dominant? If so... You need to come home to your first love and once again understand and appreciate the importance of having a master in heaven who guides every aspect of your life. And for those who are in that situation, whose master is in heaven and guiding every aspect of your life, maybe you never lose sight, never let up, because the moment you do, Satan will try to move in and ultimately convince you that indeed you can be distracted, don't have to be that devoted, and that distraction will lead to eternal destruction. Tonight, if you need to respond to the Lord's invitation, hearing it, believing in Christ, repenting of your sins, confessing him and being buried with him in baptism, or if you need to come home to your first love, whatever that need, we ask you to come as we stand to sing to encourage.